This is Model Talk. Woo! <laughs> Aren't we all supposed to say that in unison? Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. If you're just joining us, this is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is May 28th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. Today we are joined by a special guest, 538 editor-in-chief Nate Silver. Thank you for joining us, Nate. Hey guys, happy uh, post-memorial day period. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Summer, I guess. Yeah, it's offic- what's the thing you can't wear like white shoes or you can wear white shoes. You can't are wear- we allowed now to wear Now you're allowed to wear We're white now shoes. We're now allowed to wear yeah. white shoes. That other voice you hear is my co-host, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello Neil. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> and on the line from LA is sports editor Jeff Foster. Hey Jeff. How you doing, Sarah? <laughs> Not bad. I everybody watched the Indy 500, right? Well, that was just one. That was the second of two auto races that I watched on uh, on Sunday. You have problems. I did. That well, I for me, the Monaco Grand Prix. Well, no, you want me to have these problems because you're always like, "Oh, when are we going to do another Formula One story?" <laughs> when, you know, have you been watching the Formula One? Well, that, I, Sarah, I did watch the Formula One, and I, then I watched. Uh, lesser cars run around a track and uh, an oval track, and it was actually far more exciting. I, I just want it to be clear that I'm joking about you writing a Formula One. I don't know story. that you are though. But <laughs> Nate, you tell. you were actually at the race, right? Yeah, I have a couple of friends who go to the Indy 500 every year from Chicago, and I was in Chicago late last week, and they're like, "Oh, you should come," and I didn't have a good reason not to. And it was. <laughs> No, it was a lot of fun. I kind of grew up watching the Indy 500 as a kid. It's a big thing in the Midwest, right? And it was a real thrill to go to. They sing like, I don't know how much of this they show on TV. They sing like three different patriotic songs, right, in the run-up to it. There's like, America the Beautiful, God Bless America, and the Star-Spangled Banner. And wow. also an Indiana-specific and back home again Back in Home Again in Indiana. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of singing for a car race. It's yes. a lot of singing. There's like a prayer where they're like, wish sure. fast you know, fuel mileage to all the cars and stuff like that. Um, But it really is Americana. But like Indianapolis also does like a really good job of hosting these events. I've been to a Super Bowl there. I've been to an NCAA Final Four there. And I've now been to the Indy 500. And like for a medium-sized city, it's like pretty well organized. I wouldn't say super because there are like literally 350,000 people or something trying to get to the racetrack. The certain, way I knew you were at the Indy 500 was yeah. you tweeting about the traffic. <laughs> well, certain navigation Nate, were you driving? Little... Were you driving in the Indy <laughs> 500? I, no, I was not. Uh, our very friendly Uber driver, though, for all the skill he showed, you know, could have probably <laughs> qualified on the 10th, you know, um, in the 10th row or something. But like, but by the way, can I go on like a little bit of a rant, right? Like, yes. That's why yes, you're here. Encouraged. Hey, Google Maps. The Indy 500 is the largest spectator sporting event of the year. You probably ought to coordinate with the Indianapolis Police Department to know which roads are shut down and which ones aren't, right? The, to its credit, the Uber navigation system seemed to realize that this one street was shut down, right, and was doing kind of creative things that actually made sense. But, like, these navigation apps during big events, and I've been to a lot of sporting events, I've been to political conventions, the other one where things are kind of always a catastrophe traffic-wise, Y'all got to have human input 
um, in cases like those where there are road closures and where there are special events happening. Do you think that's why Oriel Servia was blocking Alexander Rossi? He just was following the uh, the the uh, incorrect mapping. <laughs> yeah, software. probably he got everyone got so tilted by getting there. Right? <laughs> um, but no, seriously. Overall, though, for an event that large, it's a pretty well well organized kind of event, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's like I've been to. Um, a couple auto races before at the Chicago Land Speedway back in the day, but like TV doesn't quite do justice to an oval in terms of how fast the cars are going and how big the oval is, right? We were like, you're seeing spectators in the other stand across diagonally, and you're like, they're like a mile away, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, kind of the first time when the cars really get up to full speed and actually takes a few laps before they get up to totally full speed, it's pretty darn impressive and like the sound is very impressive it actually smells a lot like uh smells like burning rubber kind of which you know good kind of memorial day barbecue burning rubber smell and it was a lot of fun my question is how long did it take to leave so to leave we got i would recommend people do this we got like a post-race garage pass so what happens is they actually inspect all the cars after the race one at a time to make sure that they were within specifications so you don't have a kentucky derby type steward issue or whatever <laughs> so so that's fun it's actually cool to see the cars and in some ways like like not how simple they are but like the cars are like kind of smaller than you would think right and they're not like overly adorned with like instrumentation i kind of expect them to look like an f-16 or something right and and they don't right they're pretty simple vehicles i think they want to keep weight down they don't want to distract the driver and again they are just kind of turning <laughs> turning left four times so it's not necessarily that complicated but like it's pretty cool to actually see the cars see how much like like rubber and shrapnel and stuff they pick up. And if you do that, then by the time you're done hanging out there for 45 minutes or so, then the traffic's kind of cleared out. All right. Well, let's get started with the rest of today's show. That doesn't involve uh, the Indy 500? (laughs) I know. We always need to get, you know, we need to dig into those things first. It's true. It's true. So we will talk about our NBA prediction model and what it says about the NBA finals and why it says what it says. Ahead of the Champions League final this Saturday, we'll look back at the statistically improbable events that led to a Liverpool-Tottenham matchup, and we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NBA finals kick off this Thursday with the Raptors taking on the defending champions, the Golden State Warriors, at home in Toronto. Here's Stephen A. Smith on SportsCenter discussing the Raptors' chances at unseating Golden State. Because anybody that knows basketball, I don't know how you can see them pulling off a victory over the Golden State Warriors. I'm sorry. I just don't see it. To take down this hot take, we're going to employ a feature you may have enjoyed if you listen to the politics podcast. Everybody ready? This This is is Model Talk. talk. (laughs) Nate, our model does not agree with Stephen A. Smith. Tell us what it says. Our model, as of this taping, and I should... I want to timestamp this. So we're taping this on Tuesday morning. The reason that's relevant is because our model is sensitive to news about injuries for Kevin Durant and DeMarcus Cousins. And so given what we know now about them, which is that Cousins is questionable, meaning 50-50-ish for game one, and then um, seems likely to return at some point in the series. And Kevin Durant is out for game one and a little bit of ambiguity about when and maybe even if he'll come back. So contingent on those, our model has Toronto as... Um, 55 to 45 favorites. So if you want to call it a toss-up, that's the range where in our politics forecast we call anything under 60% a toss-up. But, yeah, it has the Raptors actually slightly favored, 
55-45, which is, by the way, the same percentage they had against the Bucks, which, which also defied the conventional wisdom. And that's quite a bit off from the market price, where I think the market price is the Warriors like 70-ish or 72-ish percent favorites or something like that. So is this more about how much the model likes the Raptors, Neil, or how wary it is of the Warriors and their injuries? Well, you know, I'll probably let Nate talk about the um, the Warriors and the injuries and everything. I think in general, the public might be underrating just how good and how many good players there are on the Raptors. And there's this perception that I think that it's just... Kawhi Leonard and then a bunch of just guys that it's really Leonard carrying this team and he has been great in the playoffs he's been probably statistically the best player of the playoffs you know Leonard has been amazing but at the same time our model actually really likes Kyle Lowry first of all it it thinks that he is sort of like a you know, a, a close second best player behind Kawhi as the Raptors' best. And then it gives really high marks to people like Pascal Siakam and Mark Gasol, who they picked up in the middle of the season. Uh, Danny Green uh, shows up as being like a really useful two-way player, even though he um, ha- hasn't really, uh, he's been struggling a little bit recently. Uh, Fred Van Vliet uh, ha- has a uh, very positive rating as well. And so when you sort of look at all those and add them all up, you get the picture of a team that does have a lot of different players that, that pitch in. And you saw that, uh, especially late in the Milwaukee series, in addition to Kawhi playing really well, you know, they needed Van Vliet to get hot uh, in that elimination game. Siakam played really well, really efficient. Uh, Lowry was there, you know, to, to make uh, big plays and, and, and also just smart plays um, throughout. And so, um, and also, yeah, Mark Gasol, I think you can't discount how much he's added to that team since they picked him up. So I think in some ways the public is undervaluing just how many good players there are on this uh, on this Raptors team, and maybe you could raise the question of, well, are a bunch of good players plus Kawhi Leonard really enough to beat a team like the Warriors, who have all these multiple Hall of Famers and, and players that could stake a claim to be, you know, the, the best player in the game? Nate, what has generally been the response? Do you have people with torches and pitchforks outside your apartment over this? Are you getting a lot of grief? I don't know. I mean, I think Partly was right about the Raptors against the Bucks, and so that ought to reduce some of the skepticism. I mean, yeah, I've started to notice people like, hmm, is this quite right? But like, but to me, it's like, to me, this is sort of, it's sort of obvious why a model would think this way, right? Look, our forecast thinks that at full strength, the Warriors are the better team, even though it really likes Toronto, as Neil was talking about, um, and really likes the kind of whole starting five. And I'll explain in a moment why I think some people underrate Toronto, right? But even though it really does like Toronto, it does really, really like the healthy version of Golden State and would have them as about a 65% favorite at, if both teams are at full strength. Which though, I think a lot of people sort of have in their head as yeah. the correct number or whatever. And even though it's on, they're on the road, right? So you're missing Kevin Durant for the immediate future, if not the kind of slightly longer future. Um, and there's not that much slightly longer future. <laughs> not that much slightly longer future. The forever yeah. future, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they are the road team, so other things held equal. The home team is going to win about 54% of the time in a seven-game series if you have equally matched teams. They probably played about equally well in the regular season, but the Raptors did it with a lot of injury problems of their own, where Kawhi Leonard sat out around 20 games, Kyle Lowry was out around 20 games, and Gasol, who um, are projections like a lot better than Valanchunas 
is seen by the model as a fairly big upgrade. And by the way, I mean, like, kind of from a subjective basketball point of view, I think I like how Toronto, with their quickness and switchability, matches up with with Golden State, and particularly against the non-KD version of Golden State. Now, it's contingent a bit on Kawhi Leonard being healthy enough to defend Steph Curry for stretches. If you can't do that and you're putting him on, on, I don't know how you'd put him on, right? Draymond Green or Clay or something, I think his impact is a little bit diminished. But, you know, I like the notion of their being able to kind of keep up with the with the Warriors, give them a lot of different looks. You know, I'm not sure if, if Mark Gasol is a guy who's going to necessarily play a ton in that series, but they can do a lot of different things to counter the death lineup and whatever else. Or I guess you don't have a death lineup with KD, but you know what I mean, right? Um, well, the old death, li- uh, you know, whatever remnant is left of the original death lineup, the original not the death- Hamptons 5 lineup, yeah. but the, um, yeah, I guess it's just the the, cla- the classic vintage death lineup. So, and by the way, um, our model also looks at, at playoff experience. We've tinkered with this variable over the years, and, you know, sometimes teams have another quote-unquote gear in the playoffs accounting for how much playoff experience they have seems to kind of correlate with that, that a team may underperform in the regular season and save it for the playoffs. However, Toronto also has a fair amount of playoff experience with Kawhi Leonard, who is, I think, a finals MVP, right? Uh, yeah. Danny Green, who's been another times, spur, a terrific player in the postseason. Mark Gasol on a lot of losing teams historically, <laughs> but also some winning ones, and has accumulated a fair number of minutes, right? And they have the guy who's one of the best slower tempo half court players in the league in in Kawhi Leonard right because you can look at our projections for each player and you may be surprised that the gap between Leonard and the rest of the people isn't that large right but Leonard is a guy who um is probably even better under postseason conditions than than we have him by the way one thing our model thinks it likes the Sixers a lot and it likes the Bucks a lot and so it's saying that like what the Raptors accomplished in the playoffs is is pretty impressive. And that kind of all filters into the stats like RPM that we use to kind of fuel these projections. Our model doesn't really like the Blazers much. Either, and it doesn't right? like the Blazers. And so it doesn't really give the Warriors a ton of credit. It does like Houston. It does like the full strength version of Houston. But yeah, not only that, not only did it not like the Blazers, but Sarah, you kind of uh, saw this stat uh, floating around that the that sort of underscores how unusually non-dominant the Warriors were even in their sweep of Portland in the previous series, right? Yeah, the Warriors actually trailed for more time in their series against the Blazers than they led. Despite sweeping. Despite sweeping, yeah. That has to be one of the weirdest sweeps ever, right? I mean, it was a sort of unconvincing sweep. I think we lose sight of that because it was expected. Basically, everyone thought the Warriors would either sweep or win in five, and nobody thought it would be much of a game or much of a series. But it, it was a little bit more. I mean, they had to come back. There was overtime. I mean, it wasn't just an easy – it wasn't as easy as a sweep. <laughs> Normally is. <laughs> Nate, do you worry that um, – well, I don't know if worry is the right word, but one thing about Toronto and, you know, the way they s- shut down Simmons and Philly and Giannis and Milwaukee, they haven't really played a team that's just going to bomb them from three-point land. Um, and obviously their defense has been awesome. I'm just curious how they will – will defend the perimeter against this team with so many options shooting. I mean, if if you can defend Giannis, he is probably the toughest assignment in the league, although a very different assignment than than Steph Curry. I mean, again, I don't know, I, I like the notion, and they did beat, it doesn't mean a lot because a lot of guys either were there or weren't there in the regular season. Toronto did beat Golden State twice 
in the regular season. Just intuitively, I kind of, again, I like the defensive matchup from Toronto's point of view. Again, conditional on Kawhi's health. And I don't think they have, because they're quite switchable and can give different looks, I don't think they have a lot of liabilities as a defensive team necessarily. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, uh, it's, it's like a complete-looking team, especially in that regard. I wanted to ask, though, about what you something you touched on a little bit earlier about the regular season for, for these teams that are sort of super teams. In the case of the Warriors, they're like the quintessential super team, and they have admittedly sort of took their foot off the gas during this regular season. Do you think... Some of what we're seeing with the model trying to project this series and especially trying to project Golden State is being almost, for lack of a better word, tainted by just the input of regular season stats for a team that clearly doesn't care about the regular season. Uh, And is there anything we as forecasters who have to use data and have to use regular season data for the vast majority of teams can do? I mean, there are a bunch of issues here. One issue is the kind of higher gear slash regular season versus playoffs issue. And that can be a challenge. I mean, I think we've always been pretty happy with the various incarnations of the model in the regular season and then and then find have found the playoffs to be a challenge. The Cavs were the The Cavs were even a bigger version of this, right? Um, so we introduced a playoff experience variable that kind of accounts for the fact that teams with a bunch of experienced playoff players tend to perform better and they're postseason versus the regular season. Although when we went to a kind of player-based system, we kind of shifted that around a bit, and we are looking now at, you know, our projections are kind of based on essentially the past four seasons' worth of data. So you are looking at the long term, and one of the main tools we use, RPM accounts for playoff performance. I believe BPM... It does as well, because, yeah, we have the playoff version baked in. Um, So, but, yeah, maybe that's not quite... Maybe it's not quite tuned up enough where because sometimes it seems like actually maybe overrates these teams slightly in the regular season and then maybe underrates them a bit in the playoffs maybe we have to kind of tweak that parameter i think in principle that's probably not a bad way to handle it you know you could also say should we look at whether particular players players with shooting ability either in the half court you know for mid-range or guys can get contested shots off which is something about the warriors as these guys can shoot contested threes pretty well it doesn't necessarily rely on on wide open threes and so the crunch time possessions can work fairly well so that's area one and we should say by the way we are using other people's advanced metrics and so we kind of wind up being in a position where we sometimes feel like we're defending these inputs to carmelo where really the value that we add is adjusting for age and how to blend in the current season with the previous season and whatever else right so when we're talking about carmelo we're really talking about these two metrics we use real plus minus and box score plus minus or RPM and BPM. And we are kind of, for better or worse, slave to, to, to those inputs. Area two is, is it doing a good job of allocating credit between the different warriors? And I'm not quite as sure, you know, cause all these systems work and they kind of work backward and they say, okay, well we know that a team had X and Y pointer differential. You can adjust for strength of opponent. You can do stuff like whatever, um, ignore non-crunch time minutes. I'm not sure whether RPM does that or not. Some versions like PIPM, I think, make some of these corrections. So it kind of feels the way most people would about Steph Curry. It likes DeMarcus Cousins way more than I think it probably should, although that's maybe a different explanation, which is that for Cousins, says here's a guy who's an all-star level player for a long time, and we only have a small sample of data from the season, and he was sort of average. But average that out 
with several seasons of being an all-star, and so he's still pretty good. I think if you were to insert, and we can maybe do this, right, insert a prior, oh, a severe injury prior, like for Cousins or for Gordon Hayward, it should probably adjust to a new reality more quickly. It likes Draymond Green, and the advanced metrics generally, the plus-minus on-off metrics generally, like Draymond Green, that's reflected in our data. And I think that's uh, a lot of people um, would agree with that. Uh, yeah. That's not a overly controversial um, yeah. assessment. It is down on Clay Thompson. That's the one and that's he's controversial. Hard, yeah. <laughs> Including on his defense, which I don't know. I like Clay's defense a lot aesthetically. So I don't know. But Clay Thompson's a guy who, if you want a third banana, right, he's kind of the perfect third banana. He doesn't really generate scoring chances. He's like, he has a terrible handle or whatever, right? But, you know, maybe the best spot up shooter in the league. And if he's not, maybe the other two guys on the roster are, are number one and two and three in some order. Ironically, we always wondered why our model wasn't higher on Kevin Durant, right? who it would regard as like a top 10 or 15 player in the league, but not an MVP player as the consensus generally would. And one reason for that might be because of these on-off splits where the Warriors, in some lineup configurations, play surprisingly well without Kevin Durant on there. And so basically, these metrics are a trade-off between two ways of looking at things. One way is based on you plug all the box score stats into a model and you say over the long run, then a point is worth this and a rebound's worth this. And we can make some clever inferences based on about defense, based on X and Y, right? So it kind of divvies up credit based on people's box score stats. And the other way is to run an elaborate regression equation where you look at how do, does a team perform with and without various guys on or off the floor. In theory, the latter way is better, and if you say, well, if Kyle Lowry is a guy who um, doesn't have hugely impressive stats, but like the Raptors just play really well when he's on the court, and they do not play well when he's off the court. But you know, but these metrics are quite noisy, and so the question is, how much of the box score metric do you want to use to hedge the plus-minus metric? And I'm sure, based on the box score metric, Kevin Durant is very valuable. On the plus-minus metric, he is he is kind of in a weird zone because they play have played so well with Steph Curry, but without Kevin Durant. So I think how are we pretty far off from the conventional wisdom? I think half of it is that the Raptors are a little over underrated for reasons that are probably kind of silly, that they have a bad track record in the playoffs, which they've overcome this year, number one, and kind of involve different personnel than having Kawhi Leonard and, and Danny Green on the roster now, and Marcus Gasol, all guys who, again, have had their share of postseason experience and tremendous success. Yeah, it's um, not the DeMar DeRozan raptors anymore yeah and they play in canada right and there's kind of there's this kind of aura of invincibility around the warriors right you know i do wonder if like there's something just weird about the construction of the warriors and they obviously have a very good record without kevin durant i do wonder if like there's something our model is not quite picking up about how to allocate credit on a team with two of the greatest scorers two of the five greatest pure scorers in nba history on the court at the same time, and one of the best shooters of all time on the court also. Plus um, plus one of the best uh, like all-around performing non-scorers uh, in, in Draymond Green. So it is a, a team of freaks, basically. <laughs> the model's going to have more trouble with that than like a more linear team like the Blazers or something, I guess. Right, yeah. I mean, these models are all sort of designed to optimize for 
30 NBA teams over hundreds of games. And then I'm with you, Nate, that I suspect there's something that it is missing uh, about the Warriors. Um, and, I, yeah, I can't get over the Clay Thompson sort of negative rating uh, in particular, that there's just something about this team, and it is that trade-off between, you know, how much information do you include is all of the information you're including the right kind of information? And if not, what do you either downweight or throw out completely? And we've played around with that, as you mentioned, over the years. I think, you know, a team like the Warriors, if they broke basketball, basically, so why wouldn't they break a model that's designed to predict basketball? <laughs> so let's leave model talk there. So last week, Neil, Jeff, and I made predictions for the finals. We all had the Bucks in the finals. So let's try that again. <laughs> We literally all had the Bucks winning. Did we? I have. I can't even. Re- Jeff, you and I had the Bucks winning it all. I have so, zero memory. Um, that was that was wrong. That was wrong. Let's try that again. Seems wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now that we know who are who's actually in the finals, Neil, who you got? Well, I'm going to take the Warriors in six. I'm going to, after all this talk about the model, I'm going to sort of blatantly flout it and go against it. Uh, and again, I'll do my old trick of when the um, the team that doesn't have home court wins a series, and it's a close series, most likely it happens in six. Nice. Jeff, what about you? I sort of have a hunch that Durant is not coming back at all. Yeah. If that is the case, I'm going to say Raptors in seven. If that is not the case, and let's say he plays Comes back after game two. So he comes back for game three. Then I will say Warriors and six. So talk about covering my bases. I really. The Warriors are either going to win in uh, somewhere between four to seven games (laughs) or lose in somewhere between four and seven games. Yeah. Good Good guys. Nice. (laughs) Nate, what about you? Who are you taking? So many times our model's been high on the Raptors. finally, (laughs) Finally came through in this Milwaukee series in a big way. I'm not going to doubt the nation of Canada now. I'm going to go Raptors in in seven, although it's weird because as the series goes on, Cousins gets healthier and Durant has more of a chance of coming back. The Raptors really, really, really need to win game one and probably game two. Well, it's a good thing they don't have a historical problem with winning game one. (laughs) Oh, wait. Yeah, I mean, they really need to win that, really need to win that game one. By the way, the only way the narrative works out well for Durant, right? <laughs> is if they're losing and then he comes back and they win. Right. I, I love this question. If they're losing and they still lose, then he seems like kind of useless. Right. right? If they're winning and they still win, he seems like also like kind of an appendage. If they're winning and then he comes back and then they blow it, then like he might just retire from <laughs> what, <laughs> It's sort but, of a no win for him. Basically. What if they lose? Though? What if they lose without him? And then does he, what does he do? Well, if he doesn't that, come back and they yeah. lose, mm-hmm. then I think the notion is this is this weird, unhappy ending, and it was time to like, it was time to break up the marriage. Mm. Anyway, I think right. I, th- I, I agree think, with that. I mean, the narrative around Katie is like quite negative, right? But the reputation that he kind of was riding Steph Curry's coattails and the seventy-three win Warriors coattails will not go away unless he comes back at a point in the series when they're struggling. Yep. And then they win, which, the by the way, is not crazy. This um, is why I'm taking Raptors in five. Wow. Ooh. Yeah, no, but that's If it's going like, to happen, right, conditional on a, on a Raptors victory, it would probably happen earlier in the, in the series right. than later. I think, uh, I think we have to leave that there. But thank you, Nate, so much for joining us. Thank you for um, bringing Model Talk to Hot Takedown. This was a blast. Thank you, guys. Before we move on, a quick word from this week's sponsor, ExxonMobil. Plants capture CO2. What if we could help industrial plants capture it too? Think how we could help lower emissions. 
More and more scientists think carbon capture is key to reducing CO2 emissions globally. It's one way ExxonMobil is helping industrial plants be more like plants. That's the unexpected energy of ExxonMobil. On Saturday, Liverpool and Tottenham will face off in the Champions League final after a dramatic and surprising season. Here's Curtis Davies on Sky Sports Football's The Debate, forecasting the matchup. Tottenham might go into it as the underdogs, which might favour them because everything's going to be on Liverpool. Our model does have Liverpool as a 72% favourite to win the finals. But Jeff, does Davies have a point that perhaps an underdog status could be to Tottenham's advantage? I, I mean, I don't know how an underdog status will be to their advantage. If the question is, do underdogs have a chance of winning? Um, yes, actually, because um, <laughs> this whole tournament's been crazy. I mean, it, it's almost like if if you're just going on what's happened, you would assume the, the underdog uh, would win, which is, I guess, in theory, wouldn't make them underdogs. So it's, it becomes a little bit of an existential question at this point. Speaking of the fact that uh, these teams have been underdogs for most of the season, I wanted to ask you a question, Sarah, uh, because you're actually a Tottenham fan. I am. Uh, I think we talked about that in, in a previous podcast, your uh, your your path to uh, Spurs fandom. Uh, but this was a team that at a certain point was almost assured to not even make it out of the group yeah, stage yeah. Uh, and then and then miraculously has gone on this. So tell me a little bit about how that played out for you as an observer watching this team make it this far. So they had no business getting out of the group stage. It was always going to be a tough group for them with Barcelona, um, Inter Milan, and PSV Eindhoven. But they lost their first two matches and then drew, and it was like, oh – well, they'll be out of Champions League and they can focus on Premier League. Great. And yeah, it then, was 15% yeah. in our model at that point. Yeah, and so they got win two wins and then a draw against Barcelona, which was huge. But then they still needed Inter to lose to get out of the group stage. So I was I had written off the Champions League so so very long ago, um, and then randomly they came back. They did win in the round of sixteen pretty convincingly, um, but then they faced Manchester City in the quarterfinals. They had just a twenty one percent chance in our model of getting out of the quarterfinals against Man City, widely considered the best team in, you know, maybe all of Europe, but certainly um, in their their part of the draw. Um, Spurs won the first game, one to nothing. They still only had a 50-50 chance of, of advancing even after that. And then that second leg game was a roller coaster. <laughs> it was, it was out of control. That was the one that actually made me think that I, I was like, wait. What happened to soccer? Yeah. <laughs> I was told there would be no scoring. Right. There were four goals in the first 11 minutes I, in that. I might like soccer. I was like, <laughs> am I actually going to have to change my opinion about soccer? Yeah. The, that was a great, it was a great game. <laughs> the four goals in the first 11 minutes did set a record in Champions League. So it was a little, a little misleading. It was an outlier. Yeah, it was yeah. a bit of an outlier. But then even after that, City scored two more goals and they were up. And so it really did look dire for Tottenham. They scored a goal in the 73rd minute, and that was reviewed, and it was sort of controversial, but it was allowed to stand. And then, of course, City scored, or what they we thought they scored, in um, stoppage time at the very end, and that would have sent them on. And then there was a VAR review, and they called off the goal, and so Tottenham 
miraculously survived. It was an offside off of a guy that like incidentally touched yeah. the ball. <laughs> when a guy incidentally touched the ball, it, it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it was the Kentucky Derby, basically. Yeah. Hey, basically. now, listen. <laughs> I managed, I did it. I brought horse racing You, you made a horse racing week. reference. I, I, the streak's alive. So Tottenham advanced on away goals, which is the weird um, way that they determine ties uh, who scored more goals at the other team's uh, pitch. So they moved on to the semifinals. Going into the semis, they faced Ajax. Uh, Before that, they were pretty even, but then Ajax won the first leg, and so Spurs had just a 25% chance of advancing out of the semis. Um, according to Euro Club Index, which is used by Grace Note Sports, Tottenham's chances dropped down to just 4% of advancing once they trailed Ajax 2-0 at halftime of the second game. But then they decided to score a bunch in the second half. See, you should really love this team, Neil. They score in weird little bunches. Yeah. They got a hat trick from Lucas Mora, including a goal in the very last minute of extra time to push them over the edge. So though they have a t- just a 28% chance of, of beating Liverpool, hey. They've that's beaten- like really high by this I know. Standard. That's amazing. They yeah. were down to 4%. <laughs> yeah. A whole 28%. It's a lock. But Liver- So Liverpool, halfway through that um, semifinal aggregate, was down to 7%. So they're, you know, haven't had, the, uh, you know, the easiest road themselves. Um, coming back against Barcelona. Yeah, Yeah, I wanted to talk about Liverpool and their path so that it wasn't just a complete Sarah uh, Tottenham Hotspur (laughs) um, fan fest. But yeah, this uh, there there was a stat that sort of juxtaposed what you talked about just then, Jeff, the 7% against uh, Tottenham's own low odds uh, at the same time. And if those two semifinals were played at the same time at the 50-minute mark, the odds of this all-English final would have been 100 to 1, according to that uh, win probability probability uh, metric that Grace Note had. Um, and then Liverpool, uh, you know, pulled off the the improbable comeback. They scored four against Barca, held Messi uh, and, and his friends scoreless. So now it's kind of come down to, you know, on the one hand, they're clearly two of the best teams in Europe, uh, and they're both from the EPL, but maybe you wouldn't have expected it to be these two particular teams mm-hmm. that, that are in the final of the Champions League. Liverpool was one of, of a group that could have won it all. Tottenham, not so much. <laughs> so this is a pretty pretty unusual thing. They're, um, this is only the second All-England final in the Champions League since it's been the Champions League, too. So that's pretty interesting. So Well, Harry Kane is going to be back also, we should he, say. He um, is. And- I he hasn't been it, uh, through all of what we just talked about the craziness right. and the scoring um that Tottenham had to do under these pressure situations they didn't even have their star scorer yeah, right, in all of it right i'm um slightly concerned that he's not actually ready for this but just is kind of pushing himself to come back Harry Kane's a real Kevin Durant in this situation <laughs> <laughs> yeah where are all the hot takes about how uh, is is Tottenham better without Harry Kane wait is Harry Kane going to the Knicks <laughs> yeah that's no he's going to uh what New York FC <laughs> yeah. um I don't I don't think so <laughs> but our model doesn't factor in that Kane was absent so that makes that even all the more impressive. Yeah, <laughs> it should have been even lower odds, yeah. This is the only way we can guarantee an EPL team will win the Champions League, which is nice because it's been a long time. Tottenham has never won an- anything, really. Liverpool was runner-up last year, so this would be um, this would be a great comeback for them. All right, let's leave that there and move on to our rabbit hole of the week. 
at 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, start us off. Sure. So uh, two weekends ago, the Arizona Diamondbacks commemorated Randy Johnson's 2004 perfect game with a special promotional giveaway at the game. That doesn't sound especially notable. Teams do this all the time. But what was notable was what they ended up giving away. It was a figurine of Johnson, specifically a figurine known as Starting Lineups, that classic staple of 80s and 90s kids' toy collections. Uh, Johnson became the 26th athlete to receive his own starting lineup figurine since 2016. And that might actually sound kind of low since... If you remember those figures, they made just some of the most random players imaginable during the 90s and and the late 80s into starting lineups. I should mention, first of all, before I dive into this spiel further, what a starting lineup is. So it's a about a four-inch tall plastic figurine of a sports player. Uh, and they're in various poses. Oftentimes they're holding a bat in baseball. They also made them for basketball, football, hockey, even NASCAR and the Olympics uh, eventually, which I'll get into. Basically, the starting lineups were huge during the 90s. I remember my first starting lineup was the little-known Atlanta Braves catcher named Ozzy Virgil. Uh, <laughs> he happened to be an all-star the year before the first set of starting lineups came out in 1988. Uh, and so he got his own starting lineup. Um, they were originally the brainchild of the former Bengals punter Pat McAnally, who uh, also ha- happened to have a perfect score on the Wonderlick test. Those were his two claims <laughs> to fame was perfect Wonderlick invented starting lineup. That's so, a pretty good right? career. Legacy-wise, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could do a lot worse yeah. than that. Are we just giving him credit for inventing action figures? I mean, <laughs> well, no. I mean, he was apparently walking... <laughs> what if it was a sports action figure? That's actually how it came about. So apparently he was walking through the, the uh, toy store, and he saw G.I. Joes and, and all of these other action figures and was like, why don't they have any of uh, the, the real heroes in society, the sports stars? And so he happened to have a friend at the toy company, Kenner, uh, and he pitched this idea, and they thought it was great. They uh, It was also great timing because it coincided with these two huge collecting booms in the 80s. So first of all, action figures, <laughs> uh, which you alluded to, Jeff, they exploded in popularity in the 80s. You had like He-Man, Transformers, all of the mini Barbie variants, and G.I. Joe, as I mentioned, and then also trading cards, which sort of started forming this speculative bubble among collectors who, at one point, people thought that uh, buying sports cards was sort of a legitimate alternative to investing in stocks, uh, which seems so funny in retrospect, but it was a thing. And so starting lineups were instantly successful once they made them. Um, There's a really great story about the whole history of them uh, at Sports on Earth, written by Joe D'Alessio, but um, in that story, he says that Kenner made 346 different figures of baseball, football, and basketball players in 1988, the first run that they uh, made of them. And these things were iconic. For instance, in Home Alone, which I will argue is the most 90s movie ever made. Uh, You guys can can, uh, at me on that. Uh, 
but Kevin McAllister shoots a series of starting lineups, which appear to be Babe Ruth, Mark Bavaro, Neil Anderson, and Larry Bird. What a collection! With him, wow. with his brother's BB gun, uh, he shoots them down into like a laundry shoot as target practice. There, there's a really great website called StartingLineupFigures.com in which they track every figure uh, of every player that was ever made. So I scraped the data from there naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, as and one does. As one does in their, uh, over a holiday weekend. Uh, and in the original run, there were 2,148 figures made in the regular series, uh, which includes 939 baseball players, 700 NFL players, 335 from the NBA, and 174 from the NHL. The NHL had less because they didn't get that license until 1993, which was a full five years after uh, they'd started making baseball figures. So the two players who had the most starting lineups made of them were Cal Ripken Jr. and Barry Bonds. They were there 13 times apiece. Right behind them were Ken Griffey Jr., Dan Marino, and Deion Sanders, who had 12 apiece. But Sanders is especially interesting because he had eight as a football player and four as a baseball player. Sure, naturally. Uh, The leader for basketball was Patrick Ewing. He had 10 starting lineups made of him. And then in hockey, uh, Yaramir Yager and Eric Lindros had six starting lineups made apiece. Uh, but in, like I said earlier, in addition to the four major sports, they also made special figures for Olympians, NASCAR drivers for some reason. Uh, they had these sort of oversized versions of baseball players that were like standing inside of a small version of the stadium that they <laughs> played in. But anyway, so they, they were huge in the 90s, but unfortunately, along with the collecting bubbles that burst for trading cards especially uh, and all of the little collectible items the bubble burst on starting lineups which people also had kind of bought maybe it was shades of the beanie baby craze also along uh, at the same time but now there's a lot of starting lineups that uh, are just sitting around in people's basements and attics that are totally worthless a few rare ones on ebay i was able to find actually are really uh, have have high asking prices one was uh, had a price as high as one thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars for whom? <laughs> well, that so uh, I I believe these are ones uh, that could round out someone's collection, but they were rare. Uh, the way they distributed these was that they um they they would send the majority of the action figures into the home market of the player. Um, and so uh, the one that's fetching seventeen fifty is the nineteen eighty eight Mark Wilson L A Raiders, uh, and the nineteen eighty nine Bill Fralick uh, uh, is right behind it with a one thousand six hundred and fifty uh, asking price. So I, I think some of these were these guys even in the starting lineup. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like... of their own team, Mark Wilson may not have been. I remember he he was a backup quarterback for a long time. I like on eBay it's uh, sixteen fifty or, or or best offer. Or best offer. <laughs> I'll give you five bucks. But the thing that that tells me that this is like people take this seriously is there are seventeen people watching oh, yeah. that auction on eBay. So so some people uh, are taking it seriously at least. <laughs> Unfortunately, because of the downturn in these. They discontinued the series in uh, 2001. In fact, Kenner went out of business in 2000, uh, and their parent company, Hasbro, just sort of shut things down not long after that. So for a long time, you couldn't actually buy starting lineups, no matter where, uh, aside from on eBay as these sort of retro uh, nostalgia items. Uh, The brand laid dormant. 
Uh, and Hasbro had actually let the trademark lapse, and a different company currently owns the rights. But they have been making a comeback, hence the Randy Johnson uh, that, that the Diamondbacks gave out. So in 2016, uh, the chief marketing officer of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a guy named Brian Killingsworth, was just rummaging around in his mom's uh, you know attic and digging through childhood toys to give to his own kids. And he found a lot of his old starting lineups, and he thought to himself, hey, what happened to these, first of all? Because it, it, he was probably like me. I didn't realize until I was researching this rabbit hole that they didn't make them anymore. It had not been a thing for a long time. Uh, but this guy with the Bucks decided to revive them as a promotional giveaway. I think some loophole in the licensing allows them to, they can't sell them in stores, but they can give them away at the actual stadiums uh, as, as these promotional items. And so he commissioned one uh, for Bucks quarterback Jameis Winston. Uh, they come in the original-looking packaging. They say starting lineup on the front of them. Uh, and usually they even come with a trading card included in the packaging, just like the old days. And so that is ha- the story of how starting lineups came back. The only one I could find this year is the Johnson one. Uh, so maybe there will be other ones that will be announced. There's been you know a handful per year. Uh, like I said, there have been 26, including Johnson, since 2016, across all the major sports, too, um, football, baseball basketball and hockey oh, wow. neil how many of the classics would you say you still have oh man well uh, d- does still have include ones that are at my mom's house right now like yes. under my old bed yes, that counts. oh my goodness probably dozens and dozens and dozens i have a lot of hockey i would say hockey is the one i have the most of which probably doesn't surprise anyone listening to this podcast who uh, heard me wax poetic about 90s hockey a few <laughs> weeks ago too what about you jeff I have one on my desk currently of Ken O'Brien and Lawrence Taylor. It's like a double one. We're like yeah, they used to sell them uh, as as sort of a package deal. Uh, deal was that one of those? They they must have come together. The, the interesting thing is that I don't know if they did this with the later ones, but the helmets would actually detach on the old oh, yeah, football absolutely. ones. So that's problematic when I have a two year old, and I, I I think I've recently misplaced the Kenny O'Brien helmet. I also have a Bo Jackson on the Royals where he's like going out to catch a fly ball. One thing that was oh, frustrating nice. as a kid is that they they were like statues, so you couldn't move them. So if you're going to like, you know, play make-believe with them, you know, Bo is always catching the fly ball. You know, you'd have no hitting option there. Did you have a favorite? Oh, man. Um, I think, well, one of my favorites is actually, I think, on my desk right now, which is a Randall Cunningham uh, (laughs) Eagles. Um, But among the hockey ones, I I think the one uh, that had the sort of best combination of pose plus uh, crazy uniform was Zygmunt Palfi of the New York Islanders because they had the fish sticks, uh, you know, uh, Gorton's Fisherman uh, uniform. We can do another rabbit hole on that one. There's a whole book about it, <laughs> Oh, yeah, it, that's actually. dying for a rabbit hole. Yeah. Ziggy Palfy, Islanders, and, yeah. and the uniforms they came with. <laughs> but anyway, that was, I think, my favorite hockey one, which I got the most use out of, and you could tell because, like, by the end, the uniform was just completely, like, worn away from, from use. No number on the back <laughs> and so forth. Nice, nice. Okay, I think, uh, I think we can leave that there. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks, you guys, so much for joining me. We thank Nate for joining us as well. And listeners, we'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe. Be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help others discover the program. 
You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Nate, Neil, and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.